Yeah, what is a takeaway or two that you have from the, the past couple of weeks here? Uh, All People's Church Twin Cities have been going through the Gospel of Luke. So um, just this is the time to just raise your hand and share something that has been uh, a takeaway for you. Something you're like, hey, this impacted me or this stood out to me. This was something I had never thought of before. I uh, just would love to hear what's sticking with you and uh, just to make sure something is sticking with you. Otherwise, I'm going to retire. So. <laughs> Last week it was so beautiful, just like the revelation that we really can't bear fruit and we can't do things good on our own. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was just such a release of just like, you're right, I can't, and it's okay that I can't. I'm not made to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not made yeah. to be good on my own. It's like all our goodness comes from God. Yeah. And just to reclaim that and just to have that perspective of the gospel of like, it's all Him mm-hmm. in every single way. Mm-hmm. It was just so refreshing last week. Mm-hmm. I just was so amazed just like how much of us just I feel like we're impacted in that moment just like wow just re-seeing God again in that way it was so beautiful I don't know that just like the Luke 6 just the the idea that like our faith and our life it comes from just this mercy that we've been shown it's just this inside outside transformation Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. not just cleaning the outside of a cup like be renewed Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful Mm -hmm. good one thing that's echoed for me is your language around obligation and urge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To have the Father's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Good. Great. Yeah, I think you said you're, the gospel changes your odds to urges. Yeah. And that's like just stuck with me all week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, religion says we ought to do something. and But when we're changed from the inside out we can't but help it yeah it's an urge that's good good we're going to continue in the gospel of luke today we're going to be taking a look at uh, some verses from luke 8 uh, 9 and 10 there's gonna be a spattering of verses so if you have your bible um, get ready hand on the bible because we're going to be uh, going from this place to that place and i want you to be able to track with us um, the first a uh, portion of scripture I want to just read out loud is from Luke 8, 4 through 15. I'm going to ask somebody with a common translation, so ESV, NIV, NLT would be okay. Um, uh, NASB would be okay too. Just ones that read well uh, and are common here for Luke 8, 4 through 15. Uh, would anybody be willing to read the parable of the sower for us this morning? You can stand up and read it out loud when you when you get there. You can just raise your hand if you want to volunteer to do that. All right, Kayla. Um, And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mm -hmm. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, 
but for others they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe the <coughs> And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as those for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Daughter's beautiful work. I love it. Every week she comes and does a, a welcome piece for us. I don't know if you've taken note of that, but I love that she does that. Okay, so if you haven't met Audrey yet, Audrey's uh, one of my favorite people. She's very, very funny. And one of the things that she developed recently uh, over the past year was a theory that all men believe that they can land a plane in an emergency situation. <laughs> 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 and so, it was funny, we were out, uh, <laughs> we're, last fall we were hanging out as a, as a group and she just started asking random guys in the group, she's like, she's like okay, James, in an emergency situation, do you think you could land a plane? I was like, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she asked the next guy, and he was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. One after the next after the next, every man thought that he could land a plane in an emergency situation. So, uh, the wash. meet someone who says they can. No one has been homeless. Okay. Have you asked them to do this? No, you said you then said you could. Okay, fine. Tim's the only homeless man. Tim's honest. No, no, no. This is fair because the Washington Post actually conducted a very similar survey. And they uh, polled a bunch of Americans, and they found that one in three Americans, including nearly half of men, are confident they could safely land a passenger airplane in an emergency situation, relying on only the assistance of air traffic control. Uh, Just one in five women thought the same thing. So women are a little bit more honest, I think, and realistic. (laughs) Maybe maybe some. Uh, And so here's what's interesting is then they put... Uh, some different people through a flight simulator, okay? They uh, went to Indiana, I think, and they they put people through this flight simulator, no flying experience. They put uh, three uh, uh, non-aviators into the simulator, and they, they, you know, just said, okay, uh, here you are. We're going to run this scenario. You're in a commercial airline. The, 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 The pilots are no longer able to man this aircraft, and you need to bring us safely down to the ground. Go. And, uh, and they had help from, uh, if they could figure out the, the headset, they could talk to the air traffic control. <laughs> and then uh, and the air traffic controller could help guide them. They also have something called an autopilot system on an airplane that, in theory, can land a plane itself if you don't touch anything. So, so out of those three people that were non-aviators, how many do you think uh, successfully landed that plane? Zero. Zero. One out of the three were able to do it. One out of the three were able to do it. So actually, the the confidence level of Americans, one in three say they could, one in three is not totally far off. But this is with the help, by the way, 
of an autopilot system, a very sophisticated <laughs> instrument cluster, and the help of the air traffic controller. Okay, so some ca- caveats there that really they're not doing much other than not screwing it up, right? Like, don't, just don't touch the red button. Okay, I think that's the key. Um, we in America and in the American church, I think, uh, have a similar level of confidence when it comes to what we know or think we know about the Bible, what we think we know about faith, but there's a gap between what we actually know and then what we're actually doing. Um, We live in this DIY, YouTube-trained, podcast-engorged, virtual classroom world where we have at our disposal uh, an entire catalog of sermon commentaries, we have or Bible commentaries, we have sermons from every pastor across the globe, and we have uh, no shortage of Christian books. Um, many of us believe ourselves to be better at being a disciple than actually we are. Um, the major gap of American discipleship is this, what I call the obedience gap. Um, we have this category here of theology, doctrine, and theory, right? And then we have over on this side what I call practice. And I would say on this side of that spectrum, we are engorged with more than enough information. Do you know that right now, I just looked this up, there are 92,000 religious podcasts out there. Not episodes, podcasts. 92,000. The Christian book publishing industry is a billion dollar industry. Annual revenue has averaged about $1.2 billion a year uh, over the past five years. Even a large portion of non-Christians are reading uh, Christian books. According to a study done by Barna, nearly half of all adults associated with a faith <coughs> other than Christianity, 46%, indicated that they had read a Christian book in the last year. So a plethora of information does not necessarily translate into life transformation. Yeah. Can we agree on that? Yeah. A plethora of information does not necessarily translate into life Transformation. Um, I just imagine, like, if my if my kids were to just stay in school for the rest of their lives, you know, just learning more and more and more and more, but never actually got into a field. You're like, what is the purpose of that, right? Like, if you were just to be a perpetual student but never actually go practice in a profession <laughs> or a field, what would be the purpose of your schooling? Um, And so Christian discipleship, as we're going to see this morning, as we continue to dive into the book of Luke, is in essence not theory and theology. It's a practice. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, Paul, in speaking to his disciple Timothy, uses three analogies uh, to to, uh, talk about discipleship. He says uh, he uses the, the analogy of a farmer, a soldier, and an athlete. And if you think about those three fields, those are something that people spend years practicing learning and, and in an apprentice form living out in the field learning from somebody else who's already doing this work so that they can go be a farmer, a soldier, or an athlete. Um, how good would be a farmer that has all theory and knowledge but can't grow a single crop? How good would a soldier be that has all theory and knowledge 
but actually is no good on the combat field, doesn't even know how to use a gun. How good would an athlete be that has all theory and knowledge, but can't even run a mile in under 20 minutes? You know, like, how good would these people be without actually knowing how to implement and put into practice what they've learned? There's this age-old, like, as a pastor, I've heard this before, I've probably been this person before, people say, "I, I just need deeper theology. Like, they'll leave one church for another church. They're like, I just want deeper theology. I just want, you know, to go deeper. And what I have found and really have come to believe is that that's not actually what somebody wants more of. Like, actually, what is going on inside of themselves is a sense of dissonance where they're like, I I want to be a better Christian. uh, And I think that getting more information is going to help. But what they're actually needing is for somebody to show them to show them how to put into practice the things that they've learned, the things that they know to be true. They need somebody's help. Uh, They need that apprentice type of relationship in uh, becoming more and more like Christ. Um, Knowing the term transubstantiation or penal substitutionary atonement theories, like these, these things don't actually make you a better Christian. Jesus never used big words like that. Like, they don't actually make you a better practice practitioner of your faith. And in fact, I would say that oftentimes it leads to somebody having a big head uh, and being extremely uh, um, unbalanced in their, in their life. Um, so we're going to be talking about this topic of discipleship as practice today as we, as we look at God's Word and see Jesus master, had a master plan of evangelism for reaching the world with this good news of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and his master plan included people practicing and putting into practice the word of God, not just knowing more information. Mm-hmm. So what is a disciple? The term, uh, to know the term disciple, let's take a look first at the term Christian, because that's the term we typically hear people referring to, this category of people known as Jesus Jesus people, we, we use the word Christian. The word Christian occurs seven times in the Bible. That's not very much. The, the word disciple occurs 296 times in the Bible. But isn't it Christ, interesting that we use the word Christian? Um, Christian, in essence, should mean little Christ. I mean, that's what the word actually means, like little Christ, like Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, it's an appropriate description of of who we are called to be, because we're called to be like Christ. Um, but commonly in culture, it's also used cu- uh, culturally to refer to people who just have a vague association with Christianity historically. Uh, I went to church growing up. I ascribe to some of the worldview and some of the values, and I like Christ, Christ you know. Um, I'm not of this religion, I'm not of this religion. So we use the word Christian very broadly. Um, but disciple, I think, is... Uh, the, the term that is more appropriate to understand what does it look like to be a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a true Christian who is not a disciple of Jesus. Okay, So it's, it's actually not uh, accurate to call somebody a Christian if they're not actively following G- after Jesus. Because again, if, Christ, if Christian means to be like Jesus and we're not following him in our, in our life, then it's not appropriate uh, to describe somebody as Christian. Um, the word disciple is not unique to Jesus. So even in the Bible, uh, people like John the Baptist had disciples. Uh, the word disciple is probably most understood in terms of uh, apprenticeship, right? 
Uh, so it's somebody who studies under another person to learn their trade, to learn their ways. Um, and so Jesus used uh, Jesus uh, called people to follow him. They, he invited them into discipleship with the phrase, follow me, follow me. And when, when Jesus invited somebody to follow him, uh, it was not just, um, um, uh, you know, kind of like, study me from a distance, but it was actually like, hey, actually come and spend time with me and do life with me. And so for three years, Jesus invested his life into certain individuals that he selected to come and follow him, to learn from him, and they were associated with him. Um, So discipleship is an invitation to spend time with Jesus and to be associated with him and to learn things by proxy, like not from a distance, but by proxy, like just by watching and observing him. Um, So in the the Bible, we have... uh, the first 12 apostles, the first 12 disciples. Um, and uh, we start with, in chapter 5, Jesus had initiated with the first three, Peter, James, and John, who would become his closest three that we see throughout Scripture. Peter, James, and John. Uh, and again, he said, come, follow me. And, uh, it, uh, and it said that they left everything to follow him. Uh, and then it also says in the Bible that he appointed the 12 to be apostles. So I want to give a quick word study on this. Uh, because sometimes people assume that the 12 apostles um, were kind of like unique and that we don't need to replicate what they're doing um, because of of who they were. The term apostles uh, were unique, but um, but not so much so that we can't learn from them and model our lives after how they follow Jesus. So um, the term apostle is a Greek word uh, that meant three things. This is so fascinating. The first meaning is admiral of a fleet of ships. So when Rome would come in and be colonizing a new territory, there would be an apostle that literally would be the ship that's leading a fleet to go and colonize a new territory. The second term would be a passport. So a passport is what you have as documentation that allows you to come into a new place, a new territory. So to be an apostle or to have your apostle was meaning that you had access into a new place. And then uh, the third was an ambassador. So they were an ambassador who represented a high-ranking authority. And so um, admiral of a fleet of ships, passport ambassador. Some disciples, like the Twelve, are sent to lead out and colonize new places, right? Uh, That's if you have an apostolic calling on your life. You might have heard that word in church, apostolic. It means to be a sent one to go to a new place, establishing the kingdom and going first. Uh, That was a unique aspect to uh, these 12. It's unique still today to certain peoples. In some ways, Katie and I have done an apostolic work of starting a new church here in the Twin Cities. We came from a faraway place to to colonize this place for the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God here. but here's what happens is people come to two wrong conclusions again. Uh, they assume that either all discipleship will look like that of an apostle and therefore they must be a full-time vocational minister and, and missionary. Okay? That's not the case. Because uh, as we look throughout the Bible, he sent some to go forward and ahead and, lead the, and then he also sent some to be in a certain place and to stay there. Uh, we'll take a look at that. The second wrong conclusion that people come to is that the apostles were a unique type of disciple Therefore, disciples today won't be doing the same things they were doing. 
This especially is applied to the gifts of the Spirit. They assume like, hey, God gave the gifts just to those early disciples uh, to do a great, powerful work, and we don't do those things today. Let's actually look at what the Word of God says. Amen? All right, Luke 8. Luke 8, 1 through 3. Who were Jesus' disciples? So we know about the, the initial 12. We know about the initial 3 before that. Uh, here's who we find Jesus called uh, to be his followers. Luke 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Okay, so who are Jesus' disciples? Disciples are men and women. Men and women, that would have been extremely controversial in that day. Uh, in a, in a uh, what's it called when it's predominantly men? Patriarchal. Patriarchal, hetero, yeah. Yeah, so mostly men would have been the ones, uh, men would have been the ones to be called to be a, uh, a disciple of a rabbi. They would have been the ones called into um, uh, to the priesthood. And so, uh, but Jesus had men and women around him. So this is good news for you women, right? This is awesome. There's no, there's no distinction in Jesus' eyes. He says, you are all welcome to follow him. Men and women. Uh, who else were around him? Sinners. Not just the righteous ones. Sinners. Uh, who else were around him? Tradesmen. Those who were not chosen earlier in their life by rabbis and thought to be like the, the professional uh, religious people of the day, but just people who were working a trade. Um, so we see in Jesus' disciples, we see people who are cl- uh, clothing makers, uh, Lydia, we see a fisherman, we see uh, doctors, uh, we see tax collectors, people who had different trades were called to follow Jesus. But then we also see the religiously devout. Uh, those who uh, were uh, devout were also following him. There's several references to people who were religiously devout who were also interested in following Jesus. And then you had the wealthy and the poor. Jesus extends the invitation to all peoples to follow him. So this is good. This is good news. What I'd love to look at, and this is what we're going to spend um, the bulk of our time in the text looking at, is the marks of a disciple. Like, what is a disciple? Uh, What are the consistent themes of a disciple that should apply to all of us? That uh, if we were to put God's word into practice and obey him in in his invitation to follow him, what would we look like and be doing? So uh, Luke 5, 8 uh, this was earlier on. Um, uh, Jesus calls Simon Peter, and it says this, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. What does he call him? Go away from me. Who's there? Luke 5, 8. Go away from me. Lord, I am a sinful man. Then in Luke nine eighteen, I told you would be jumping around here a little bit. Uh, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he began to ask the people around him, who do people say that I am? And then he turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this revelation, Jesus, you are the Christ, which also translates as Messiah. So the first mark of a disciple is that disciples profess Jesus as Lord. Like he is Lord. I, I, I know this is like, duh, but we can't get away from this. I, there are... 
people gathering under the guise of church today in the United States where people could not answer this question very clearly for themselves. Um, uh, Ivan and I were, were touring a space that we're considering looking uh, to rent and it was so interesting. We're talking with one of the parishioners there and I said, hey, how do you feel about the direction of your church and this denomination that you're part of? And he's like, well, not very great. You know, they say that over the next 10 years, a third of the churches in this denomination are close. And, and then we got talking about Jesus and, and, uh, and he said, you know, yeah, there's a lot of theories of who Jesus was. And he's like, I kind of gravitate towards the idea that Jesus was like the son of God. You know, and I was like, interesting. Like, kind of gravitate towards the idea that Jesus was the son of God. And this was like a charter member of this church, right? Like, he was a founding, like, like, I'm like, you've been here for how many years? And you're kind of convinced that Jesus was maybe the unique son of God. I was like, wow. Wow. So decide, but this is this is the state of the church that we live in, like like in America. Like, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. Uh, some people believe that he was a good moral teacher. Some people believe that he was a revolutionary, as a prophet. Uh, but Jesus' disciples have the revelation that he is Lord and that he is Messiah. We've been talking about the prophetic. Uh, uh, narrative, the story of scripture, all back to the Old Testament, the fall, the prophet saying there will be one who comes to save the world of its sins. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he proclaims himself to be this person. And then he, he lives out these proofs through miracles and then rising from the dead. So Jesus is Lord and he is the Messiah. This is the first and foremost foundational principle mark of a disciple. There's going to be five that we, uh, we capture here. Number two, in Luke 9, uh, verse 23, uh, Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Yeah. Earlier on, when he was calling specific people, he called Matthew, also named Levi, and, uh, and Jesus said, follow me. And it says that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. When he called Peter, James, and John, it says this in Luke 5, 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So disciples, followers of Jesus, deny themselves and their selfish ambitions. So there has to be a surrendering to like what you think your life should be about. And saying, God, like, you are Lord. Yeah. My life is now about what your life is about. Yeah. My priorities are now your priorities. You know, like, Jesus, I want to follow you. So there's a denial of self and a carrying of our cross. So we deny ourselves and our selfish ambitions. That's number two. Number three, Luke 9, 1 through 2. Jesus had called the 12 together. If you want to read this with me, it's, uh, this is good to underline here. Luke 9, 1 through 2, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to do what? Proclaim Proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Disciples are filled with power. Not some. All disciples are filled with power. Disciples are empowered. This is what I would say. Disciples are empowered to live a supernatural lifestyle. So these are people that are filled with ridiculous, crazy faith. 
to believe for the unbelievable, to trust God with their lives and for their provision and protection. These are people who are willing to pray for the sick. They're willing to pray for somebody possessed. They're even willing to pray to see the dead raised. When you are raised, when you are filled with power, you live differently. You don't live as a victim. You don't live in a fatalistic way like, well, if it's God's will, we'll see. You know, you're saying like, no, no, no. I actually have seen, God has shared his secrets with me, right? We've read these verses. I've shared my secrets with you. I'm sharing these things with you. I know God's will. I know what he wants to do. He wants to spread the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he wants me to follow him so that all people could enter into relationship with God, to be forgiven of their sins and to experience eternal life. Like, I know that that's what God wants to do. And so I'm just hitching my wagon to Jesus and doing that very thing. And so you live differently when you're filled with power. I hope one day you get to meet my friend, um, uh, we'll call him Miguel. Miguel is a man who lives in, uh, in Mexico, working along uh, La Bicia, the train that goes up from Central America all the way up to the border, uh, and it carries migrants. And he just ministers to them. Like, he's like, I, politically, I'm not here for politics. He's like, but there are people that are fleeing war-torn countries. There are people that are being raped, stolen from. There are people, uh, good and bad, that are coming up on this train. And I just want to share with them the love of God. Mm-hmm. And so he, he meets people all the time. And he gives them their number, his number. And he says, hey, if you need anything, you call me. Mm-hmm. So one day he, gets this, the, he meets this girl, uh, this woman, and she has a son. And, uh, and uh, he meets them on the train. They, they have communion. They, they feed them a meal. Um, and she goes on her way. Um, about a week later, he gets a, a text from her on WhatsApp, and, he, and she says, please help, we've been kidnapped. Cool. And so, and he's like, where are you? And so he, and, and, um, and she said, I don't know, but we rode the train north, and she gave some hints of where they might be. So he said, okay, uh, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he starts praying, and he just felt the Lord impress upon his heart. Again, this is a, not an ought, this is an urge, you know, like, I need to go, and I'm going to trust God to show me the way. So he begins driving north with a friend in his truck. They drive north, and he just asks the Lord, like, you got to show us where to go. She said it was going to be like this, and maybe like this. And he, he had just some vague symbols or kind of clues of where she would be. And uh, he, he pulls up to this house, and both he and his friend say, I think this is the house. I mean, this is hours and hours away in a totally different city, border city somewhere. He knocks on the door. Uh, he goes up, and... Uh, and somebody answers the door with a gun. And they said, what are you doing here? And he said, there's a woman in this house, and you've kidnapped her and her son, and I'm here to take them back. And uh, essentially, what happens, I can't tell you the whole story because it just it would take too long, but someday he will uh, for you. I've asked him to come, and he wants to come. Uh, he gets kidnapped. Uh, and he is in the house. At gunpoint, they're threatening to kill him. And they said, no, the only way we can give you these ones is if you pay us some absurd amount of money, like $10,000. He's like, I don't have $10,000. He's like, but you're going to give them to me. And they're like, who do you think you are? And he said, I am here in the name of God to come and get these children, these ones that you've, you've taken. And uh, the boss calls the big boss. He gets in a car. They take it by gunpoint. And uh, they get stuck in a torrential downpour. And they can't get anywhere. And so she's like, why are you here? Why are you risking your life? You know you're about to die, right? Like, we're taking you literally to go get murdered. 
and she's like, we're selling these people uh, in, in the sex industry. That's what, that's what they are kidnapping these people for. And he said, why, why, why are you doing this? He said, um, he said, well, I'm not worried about what will happen to me. I know what will happen to me when I die. Uh, do you know what will happen to you? And he starts just like sharing the gospel with this individual in the car. And then she said, okay. She's like, I could get in so much trouble, but I want to help you. And she said, you could, but you got to pay me this much money. He's like, I don't have that much money. She's like, oh my gosh, you're making this so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Miguel uh, ends up, uh, this, this woman ends up uh, uh, saying, okay, I'm going to help you. You have to do exactly what I say. We're going to drive back to this house. You need to get in the car and you need to drive because within about five minutes, they're going to come looking for you. Um, and so uh, they get in the car, they drive as fast as they can, they blow through a few stop signs, and, uh, and they get out of town, and they're able to get this woman and her son and another uh, individual or two out at the same time. Um, and when you think about the kind of faith that that required and the kind of power he was filled with, it wasn't like, and he talks about it, he's like, I was trembling. Like, it's not that he didn't feel unafraid, Right? But he was doing these actions that required great boldness because he was filled with power. He was filled with this supernatural faith to believe that one, God is good and he's in control. One, two, I can actually partner with God in what he's doing and I want to do God's work and I want to partner with him in this moment. And then he stepped out in faith and then he got to see God do an amazing miracle uh, among him. I can't wait for you to meet uh, Miguel. He's, he's a wonderful man modern day uh, hero of mine but also very ordinary at the same time just a very ordinary awesome guy uh, number four we're, we'll take a look at Luke 10 verses 38 through 42 um, so this is the story of Mary and Martha at the home of Martha and Mary uh, so as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. <clears throat> I think Martha was a firstborn, don't you? <laughs> Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Disciples are people who abide in Christ. So adoration, friendship, prayer, worship, communion, daily spending time with Jesus, daily hearing his voice and speaking with him, resting in him, being loved and affirmed by him, this is the one thing that Jesus said was needed. Disciples abide in him. Um, where, where so many Christians get burnt out is when they try to do all the things in their own strength. And they forget that they are first and foremost loved by God, loved before they even lift a finger in the morning. And they get burnt out and they get disillusioned and they say, you know what, it's not worth it. I don't want to do this anymore. The ones who make it for the long haul are the ones who are best at receiving love from God. The ones who make it for the long haul are the ones who are best at receiving love from God. Mm-hmm. Not the ones who are the best at loving other people, not the ones who are best at doing the religious stuff, but the ones who are really good at being loved by God. 
One thing is needed. So disciples abide in him. And number five, as we read from the parable of the four soils, uh, we know this according to the fourth soil. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word of God, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Remember that inside out thing, internal motivation, and bear fruit with patience. Mm -hmm. So they bear fruit. Mm -hmm. In Luke 8, uh, when Jesus talks about the cost of following him, he's talking to different individuals. He said, "I, I asked this guy to follow me. He had an excuse. I asked this guy to follow me. He had an excuse. He says to the third man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead go bury the dead, but you go and what? Proclaim Proclaim the kingdom of God. So we're going to draw out a few themes and they all are the same thing here. They bear fruit with patience. They go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 8, 19 through 21, when Jesus was uh, teaching in the synagogue and some people said, hey, your mother and your brother outside. He said, who are my mother and brothers but those who hear the word of God and do it. So bearing fruit, proclaiming the kingdom of God, going and doing it. And then um, our last passage here in this section we'll take a look at is Luke 10, 1 through 4. When Jesus sends out the 72, um, uh, he, he's sending them out. The word, the verb sent is found numerous times in this passage in 10, 1 through 4. <clears throat> he sent them out two by two. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. And then he says, when you get there, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Oh, there's one more short passage here. And then going back to when when Peter was being called, um, Peter was afraid. He said, go away from me from a sinful man. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will do what? Fish for people. So bearing fruit, proclaiming the kingdom of God, putting the word of God into practice, fishing for people. These are the, 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 the key themes here for this fifth point is that disciples build the kingdom of God and bear fruit. Disciples build the kingdom of God and bear fruit. Um, and when it comes to bearing fruit, we're going to be talking about the, the, Jesus' how he went about and did this, how his master plan of evangelism um, in the, in the Great Commission, uh, at the end of Jesus' life, and this isn't in Luke, but Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then uh, we see in, in Paul's charge to his disciple Timothy, uh, this idea of imparting life to life, life on life. He said, in the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and this is where the white word is helpful. So Paul is saying, in the things you've heard me say, this is Paul, and he's speaking to his audience, which is who? Timothy. Timothy. Impart to reliable people who will also be faithful to do what? Teach Teach others. Others. So, others so in this is this is a really easy one to memorize by the way because it's all about twos two Timothy two two um, and the th- things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses Timothy 
uh, teach these to reliable people who will also be faithful to teach others. So there is this life-on-life -life transfer of teaching people to be obedient <laughs> to Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what um, I believe discipleship is supposed to look like. So if you think about a chef, what does a chef make? Think about a carpenter. What does a carpenter make? Carps. Wood. Furniture. <laughs> when you think about a dressmaker, what does a dressmaker make? When you think about a disciple, what does a disciple make? Yes. You're getting it. Good. Okay. So let's just summarize if you're the note-taking type. Disciples profess Jesus as? Lord. Disciples die to their selfish? Ambition. Disciples will be filled with? Power. Disciples abide in? Disciples bear kingdom fruit is this last one. And the kingdom fruit has to do with what we are teaching the next generation of, of believers. Um, I have this summary statement here. Disciples profess Jesus as Lord and follow his ways, denying their selfish ambitions and dying to themselves. They are filled with power as they abide in him so that they can bear fruit and build the kingdom of God. Um, so Jesus uses a lot of like growing analogies in scripture. He talks about gardens. He talks about these oak trees. He talks about seeds being scattered. And what we, we see is that Jesus is growing something. What is this thing in the Gospel of Luke that he's growing? I hope you've been paying attention. What's he growing? The kingdom, the kingdom of God, exactly. So uh, in, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he stands up and reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 61, it says, You will be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And so Jesus is doing this thing. He's raising up these oaks of righteousness. He's growing. He's planting. He's raising. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we think about bearing fruit, we should be thinking about that imagery. Um, oak trees uh, produce a lot of acorns. And those acorns then go and produce a lot more oak trees. And those oak trees bear acorns. They grow a lot of ac uh, oak trees. And so bearing fruit has to do with the people we're raising up. It's not just about, um, not just about our words. It's not just about our, our, our um, uh, beliefs and our thoughts and our theories, but it's about our actions and what we're doing in terms of making disciples. So uh, years ago, my mom gave me this book that really impacted me deeply and changed my, the way I was thinking about church. It was called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Anybody read this book? Yeah. So it's an old school book, but it's so powerful because it's so simple. But it lays out, how did Jesus do this? How in three years' time did one man change the world? You know, like we don't know much about him before his three-year period of ministry. But in three years' time, how did he change the world? What would you guys say? What was his method? Discipleship. Discipleship, right? And what did that look like? Life on life. Yeah. He invested in, in, in a ton of people. Well, yeah, he invested in he invested in these three specifically. Mm -hmm. Then he had these twelve, and then he had his church community, the seventy-two, which eventually reached the hundreds, which eventually reached the thousands. And so, uh, here's just a few few quotes from the book uh, that are so powerful, so helpful for me. Robert Coleman says this: "It is good to tell people what we mean, but it is infinitely better to show them." Mm -hmm. People are looking for a demonstration, not an explanation. He said, Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. He said, Building men and women is not that easy. It requires constant personal attention, much like a father gives to his children. 
This is something that no organization or class can ever do. Children are not raised by proxy. The example of Jesus would teach us uh, the example of Jesus would teach us that it can be done only by persons staying close to those whom they seek to lead. And then this last quote, his concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. So at this point, I read this book and I'm fresh out of college and thinking like, all right, I need to be discipled. I've never been discipled. I don't know what this looks like. And so I start like searching for a discipler. And I met this man named Troy uh, at my church. And I really respected Troy. And I thought like, hey, he's a great guy. I'd love to be discipled by this guy. We're at this big evangelical church. And uh, Troy was just one of those studs. And I was like, Troy, will you disciple me? And he said, uh, what's that? He's like, like, and I'm like, okay. Uh, like, could we get together, you know? And I'm like, could we talk about the Bible and stuff? He's like, yeah, sure. So he's like, so he and I met several times, and I love this guy, and he's got a great heart, and we, we really sat down together, and, and I probably gleaned something from him, but he didn't have a framework. He didn't know, like, what to do. He didn't know how to make disciples. He, was, he obliged, and he was very willing to meet with me, but he didn't have a framework. So fast forward a few years later, Katie and I moved to Wheaton, and we're part of this new church, and, uh, and we're there for a few weeks only, and this, this, this couple came up to us named Michael and Ann Swindell, and, and they, they came to us during service and said, hey, Katie, James, uh, we've been praying, and we just felt led to initiate with you guys in discipleship, wondering if you'd want to meet with us for discipleship, and my job about hit the ground. I was like, hold on, I'm not on staff at this church. I'm not a leader yet in this church. Like, we've just been coming here for a few weeks, and you want to invest your life in me? And I'm like, I'm in. Like, please. Like, let's do this. I was so excited. I've told the story before. I came to find out that Michael was actually younger than me, which definitely offended my flesh a little bit. I was like, how dare you think that you have something to teach me? I mean, but it was breaking my paradigm, which was a good thing. And Michael began meeting with me. And it was so good because he would... uh, read the Bible with me, and then ask me, how are you applying this to your life? And then we would talk about life, what's going on. And then, you, and then I remember one time where Katie and I were in the midst of a conflict. We had one or two of those back then. And we're in the midst of a conflict, and I said, can you believe what she said to me? I am so mad, and you know what? And this is what I did, and this is what I said, and I'm waiting for him to just like massage my shoulder and be like, oh, James, you're such a good man. You know? and, and he's like, he's like, have you repented to your wife for the way that you got frustrated at her? He's like, it's okay to feel frustrated, but when you're frustrated at somebody, that's not loving them. And I was like, (laughs) okay, we're on a different level here. So it was so helpful to have somebody who was meeting with me and holding me accountable to be the kind of person I said I wanted to be. It's one thing to go to church and raise your hands. God, you're so good. And, you know, I just want to follow you. But then when we walk out those doors, our lives are so contrary to that. We do things and our heart postures are so off. And so we need people in our lives that are going to hold us accountable to the word that we proclaim to be true. So then Michael invited me to start making disciples. And so I had my first disciple. His name was Travis. And wow, did I botch that one. <laughs> Here I am, this guy Travis, young guy, and I'm, I'm going to be investing in him all that I know. And So one morning, I wake up at like 7.30, slept through my alarm, and Travis had been waiting outside since 6 a.m. because we were supposed to meet that morning for prayer. So, and, I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, all right, I am a failure. So, 
making my first disciples was so clunky. And, uh, and then I was at uh, working a job in sales at this health club, and I had this coworker named Michael Nuttall. And uh, this guy was just wily. He was a big personality. But I just befriended him. And I started talking to him about Jesus. And then eventually we started reading the Gospel of John together. And then eventually I got to pray with him to receive Jesus. And he started walking with Jesus. We'd spend our lunch breaks walking and talking about Jesus and doing discipleship. And I was like, I just had my first disciple. I have my first disciple here. Like, I can't believe this. I never did this even when I was a full-time youth pastor. Like, people paid me to do this stuff, and I wasn't doing this stuff before. And, you know, like, people expect you as a pastor to disciple and, you know, raise their kids. But it's another thing when you're just doing this, again, not because you ought, but because you have this urge that you're like, I really want to do this. And so then I've, uh, since then, I started uh, discipling others. I started, at another point, men's uh, discipleship groups. We'd meet for breakfast. We'd talk about Jesus. Talk about how we're applying this to our lives. We're asking, how are we going to obey God's word today? We just read this. How are we going to obey this today? And these men then, and I teach them, okay, I'm going to meet with you for a period of time. And then eventually you're going to start meeting with other people and teaching them how to obey Jesus. And, uh, and as I was doing that one day with this group of guys, I'm at a Chipotle and I'm about to sit down with these two young guys for discipleship. And uh, lo and behold, I meet this guy named Brandon. And uh, we're just like striking up a conversation at the fountain machine. And he overheard me talking and he said, are you like in sales or like, are you a business owner? Because you just have this way about you. And I'm like, no, not really. And, and so we start talking and I talk with Brandon. I'm like, I just love Jesus. And I, I'm meeting with some guys here. I'm teaching them about Jesus. I'm like, do you want to have lunch with us? And so Brandon sat down with us and he had lunch with us. And then Brandon's like, man, this is so good. I want to tell my friends about this. So he starts inviting his friends, and all of a sudden, the next Sunday, guess who comes to church? Ivan Ayala, friend of Brandon's. And so Ivan comes to church, and then I start investing in Ivan, and Ivan and I start meeting. We're doing discipleship together. And, and then one day, I'm like, hey, Ivan, do you want to move to Minnesota with me? And I'm like, I'm in. And, uh, and so this is how the process of discipleship works. It's you investing your time and your heart into a few people, Okay. Uh, Paul, in speaking to the church of Thessalonica, said, hey, it was our joy not to only impart the gospel yes. to you, but our very lives. Yeah. It's life-on-life discipleship. Mm-hmm. That's what this church is going to be about, is life-on-life discipleship. It's not about a big program. It's not about a big five-week class. You come to this five-week class, and at the end of it, you're a disciple. It's about us investing in other people, our heart and our very life. Mm-hmm. So there are some nuances to discipleship that I need to just acknowledge. One is that um, uh, it is messy, right? Discipleship is messy. And there's blending between friendship and discipleship. uh, Sometimes you're discipling somebody who's a pre-believer, and sometimes they're a believer, and sometimes they're somewhere in between, it seems. Uh, And uh, and so it's messy. Uh, There's an ambiguity I want to acknowledge between uh, uh, you as a disciple maker and the disciple themselves. And the truth is, you're not going to have all the answers. You don't have to be put together perfectly. You don't have to be the, the perfect example because you have that in Scripture, and his name is Jesus. Yes. Your commitment just has to be pointing them back to Jesus. Yes. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say here? And then let's live that out. And so really, you're just taking them by the hand and saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm following after Jesus. Would you come follow after Jesus with me? Yeah. So it can be messy, and there's this ambiguity like, hey, do you know everything? No, I don't know everything. Um, sometimes it's formalized and sometimes it's fluid. I, there are certain people that I have said, hey, will you be my disciple? And then there are other people I'm like, you know, I'm just going to start investing in this guy. We're just going to get together. 
on a regular basis, and I'm just going to pour all my heart in this person. And, uh, and so it doesn't always look the same way. Sometimes you invest in one at a time, and sometimes you have a group. Jesus called Peter, James, and John the same day. He said, would you guys follow me together? I'm sure there was a lot of group discipleship going on in that. Paul's example that he gives us in 1 Corinthians is, he says this, he uses this phrase, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So there is this element, you can't just say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but have no, no human guides. Like, we need human guides to just show us what this looks like now. Because Jesus is not in the flesh like he was 2,000 years ago. He's inside of us, his Holy Spirit is with us, and his Holy Spirit's in Aaron and Audrey and all of you in this room who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we need one another to learn and to grow. Jesus intended it to be that way. Why else would he give us the Great Commission and say, go and make disciples? If he didn't need people to do this work, he would just say, hey, uh, uh, just go print off a bunch of these Bibles and leave it for other people so I can disciple them all. Like, that's not how it works. Um, so, I am landing this plane right now. Are you able to? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Most Americans seem to believe they could land a commercial plane, but few are actually doing it. Most American Christians, in theory, should be able to lead a person to Jesus and to make a disciple, but few are actually doing it. And I'm not here for any judgment, because this is, this is the culture I grew up in. Again, I was a full-time youth pastor, not really making disciples outside of my youth group, right? I didn't know how to do this or what it looked like. I had to be shown. And so here are some practicals for us. We have a, a, we have a way of doing this at All People's Church, a framework for doing this. We, it's drawn from the Bible, um, and it, it, it involves a few uh, steps. And I'll, I'll share them with you briefly, but then you're going to have to go over these again in, in a discipleship relationship. Uh, first one is just pray and ask God, God, who are you highlighting for me to invest in? Don't do it on your own. Don't just assume. Like, uh, Ask God to highlight somebody. Who is he leading you to invest in? The second step is you initiate with that person. Just say, hey, would you want to read the Bible together? This might be perfect for somebody who's not yet a Christian. Um, or you could say something, hey, I've been praying about who I might invest my life into in this season. And God keeps putting you on my heart. And I just want to get together with you to continue growing in our faith and becoming followers of Jesus. Um, or if they're in this church and they know what discipleship is and that's not going to totally freak them out, you could say, hey, do you want to be my disciple? Do you want to do discipleship? with me. I don't usually use the phrase, do you want to be my disciple? Um, Because I believe that we're all disciples of Jesus, but we learn from one another. Uh, So pray, initiate. Number three, we define the relationship. What is this? What are we going to do? How often will we meet? Until what time? Uh, And and I always say, hey, this relationship, um, we're going to get together for a period of time. I'm going to invest in you, but I do have an expectation. You're going to give this away to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, hey, after six months or after three months, uh, if you are discipling other people, I want to keep meeting with you so that we can keep working on (coughs) making disciples. Uh, And if you don't want to do that, that's okay. I'm probably going to start investing in other people, though, that are making disciples because that is what I have been called to do. That's what I believe the church has been called to do. Um, Fourth, cast vision. So this is where you just share about the Great Commission. Why are we doing this? Share 2 Timothy 2.2, let them know the expectation about making disciples so that we can continue to build the church life to life to life, person to person to person. And then number five is you just begin investing in that person. 
Um, you read the word together. You learn to spend time with Jesus. You learn how to hear God's voice. You learn how to pray with faith. You learn how to share your own testimony. Uh, for some people, you learn to pray out loud. That might be a first thing that you've never done before. Uh, you learn the ways of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, about love, about forgiveness. And then finally, you learn to make disciples. So that's what you're investing. That's what you're teaching somebody to do. You're teaching them to be obedient uh, to Jesus and what he's called us to do. Um, all right. I've gone long. Why don't you just ask yourself these three questions as we close. Uh, and you could write this down or put this in a note, note section in your phone. Uh, ask yourself these three questions. Have I ever been truly discipled? Have I ever been truly discipled? If so, to what extent? And what training or obeying gaps do I still seem to have? You can just think back to those five points. Is Jesus Lord of my life? Have I died to my selfish ambitions? Am I filled with power to live a supernatural lifestyle of great faith? Am I abiding in Jesus? And am I bearing fruit and replicating the life of Jesus in my life? So have I ever been truly discipled? And what gaps might I still have? Um, Would you be open to being discipled by somebody? Would you be open to meeting with somebody? If so, what's your next step? I would say this. Uh, you can join a life group. It's a great place because life discipleship happens in life group. Our life group leaders are trained to make sure that each person is covered and invested in and at least offered that opportunity to do discipleship. Uh, you could speak with myself or any of the leaders here. If you're saying, hey, I, I do want to be discipled. I have some concerns. I have some hesitations. I have some fears. And then maybe for some of you, there's somebody that God is putting on your heart to invest in. Who is somebody in your life that God might be calling you to invest your life into? Um, even if you don't know how to do it yet, just write their name down and begin praying for them. And then talk with the person you begin meeting with and say, hey, I've got this friend. I've got this person. I've got this brother. I've got this coworker. I've got this neighbor. I'd love to invest in them. Could you help me pray about what that might look like? Um, and we'll help you get there. So this is the vision that we're going for. My, my, my hope for us in this calendar year is that every person in this church uh, would be willing to be invested in by somebody else and that they would begin investing in somebody else in this, in this process of discipleship because this was Jesus' master plan of evangelism. You want to know how Jesus is building the kingdom of God? It happens through people like you investing their lives in other people. Lord, thank you so much for your word and what you reveal to us. Thank you that you cared enough to spend your entire life, Lord, investing day by day in, in, in these normal people, these fishermen, these tax collectors, Lord, these clothing makers, God. Uh, Father, we thank you that you invested and you saw something of gold inside of them and you called it out. And you said, hey, come follow me and I'm going to teach you how to make uh, a disciples. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I pray that our church would be fishers of men and women, Lord. That all across the Twin Cities, uh, people would be able to say, hey, my life was changed because of this person at that church and the way that they invested in me. Lord, I pray that you'd do it. And I pray that it would multiply and it would multiply and it would multiply until we see a move of God in the Twin Cities like never before. That people would no longer associate Christians with a political party. They'd no longer associate Christians 
with some kind of uh, uh, historical church that they belong to, but with a white hot type of faith that is burning. And they say, those Christians are a different kind of people. God, I pray that the people in this room would be a different kind of people, full of supernatural faith, who are believing for the impossible, who are the most generous, loving, merciful, like Jesus people in the world, God. I praise you and I thank you for what you're doing among us, Lord. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. James, thanks for...